Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Thank you for joining me today as we continue through the blue-blooded veins of the shooting of the century. We're talking about the death of Billy Woodward, in fact and in fiction, told by our man Nick in his Ramona Clay novel from 1985, The Two Mrs. Grenvilles. Last week centered in on the second Mrs. Grenville in real life and Woodward. In this episode, we're going to center into the first Mrs. Grenville in real life, Elizabeth Ogden Kreider Woodward, Elsie, Billy's mother. We all know the shooting is about to happen, but it's not like this is the mystery of the story. We know who it's done to, and we know who did it. How does it get covered up? What is the why? What is the how? How is it exactly that the death of the scion son of high society remains under wraps, under the covers, on the QT, from 1955, when it all goes down, to 1975, when Truman Capote, writing in his very delayed answered prayers, will reveal the story in fictitious form. The answer to those questions all lie within the threads of this story. Let's investigate. I gave you a little bit of the setup last week, but many of you have inquired, why do you think Dominic Dunn was so fascinated with the Woodward case? Investigators, I have an answer for you. Well, an additional answer, really, that we'll fill out in a bit more detail from our man Nick about why this case fascinates him so. I'm taking this directly from The Way We Lived Then. This is Dominic Dunn's pictorial memoir, This is a must if you are an enormous Dominic Dunn fan like me. It's a delightful book of pictures and stories. Anywho, here is Dominic Dunn writing directly from the memoir about his fascination with the Woodward case, his secret notes, so to speak. A couple of years before I married Lenny, I had a romance with a society girl actress named Ruthie Pratt, whom I met when she played a part on and I was the stage manager for Robert Montgomery Presents. Ruthie often talked about her ritzy family, and I liked to listen. Her father had married into the aristocratic horse-racing Woodward family, and she used to tell me tales of a former showgirl who married the Woodward's only son to the dismay of his very social parents and four sisters who thought the showgirl was pushy and married for money. One night at the Stork Club, Ruthie said, Oh, look, there she is. It was the showgirl herself. I was riveted. I couldn't stop looking at her. You never would have guessed she grew up on a rundown farm in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Anne Woodward was beautiful and extraordinarily sexy. She had on a pale blue strapless evening dress which she pulled up over each breast as she headed out for the dance floor in the get-out-of-my-way kind of walk she had. When she danced with her handsome husband, she sang in his ear the lyrics to a Cole Porter song the band was playing. That night, Bill and Ann Woodward were glamour personified. I thought, how wonderful to be them. A year or so later, late at night, Ann shot and killed Bill 
as he was getting out of the shower after a fight at a party, and the family that detested her stood behind her in a claim that she had mistaken her husband for a prowler. Because I had seen her and I knew all about her, I became obsessed with that case. I stood outside St. James Church on Madison Avenue and watched the arrivals and departures of the very grand people at the funeral. Twenty-six years later, in my second career as a writer, the Woodward case became the basis for my first successful novel, The Two Mrs. Grenvilles. One of the sisters of the late Bill Woodward said about me, But how could he have known all those personal things about our family? (laughs) I'm a good listener. I remembered Ruthie's stories. And Dominic did remember Ruthie's stories. And how? So how does this all connect? Ruthie's father is John Tell Pratt Jr., who originally married Mary Christie Tiffany, the daughter of George Shepley Tiffany. Big deal. John and Mary Christie will divorce, and John will go on to marry Elizabeth Ogden Woodward after her 1928 marriage with Robert Livington Stevens Jr. goes bust. Elizabeth Ogden Woodward is Billy's sister. Lots of high society and big money names in that paragraph. It's not the story I'm here to tell you, but I want to set the stage with this being a young Dominic Dunn getting the whole inside scoop from a pretty close source to the family. Thanks, Ruthie. Turned out to be a pretty good stork club date night. So we left off on the night when it all goes down in the last episode. Saturday, October 29th, 1955. There's a dinner party at Edith Baker's. Billy's shooting will happen in the wee hours of the morning, Sunday morning, October 30th, 1955. Something to note here for people who associate dates, October 30th is the day not only of Dominique Dunn's death, but also the date of Martha Moxley's death. Billy's death would be the third case Dominic Dunn will cover in his career that concerns October 30th being a pretty terrible day. On Saturday the 29th, though, Anne and Billy do attend that fancy dinner party at Edith Baker's given for the Duchess of Windsor, Wallace Simpson. And it's a pretty fancy party, no doubt. 58 guests, all dressed to perfection, flowers to perfection, menu to perfection. Mostly. See, that night there's a fight between Anne and Billy. Billy is back to fooling around. And this night at the dinner party... Bill will receive a call from his lover, which he will excuse himself to take discreetly, and Anne's not having any of that. Anne is going to throw a goblet at Billy's head. There are heated words exchanged. There are broken things. Billy will make apologies to his hostess and promises to call Edith the next morning to make whatever was broken and damaged all right. Of course, there's no question Billy will actually do this. Edith Baker's like a mom to him. He's known her all his life. So who is Edith Baker? The hostess of this big fancy Saturday night party on the North Shore for Wallace Simpson. Edith Baker is now a widow and her very rich husband, heir of an enormous fortune, like a hundred million dollar Wall Street fortune. The Bakers are a big deal. Her husband, George Jr., Passed in 1937, but during their marriage, Edith and George Jr. have some kids. 
One of those kids is the very best friend of Billy Woodward. Edith's son is named Grenville Kane Baker. That's right, Grenville, the inspiration for the name of the family in the novel. Grenville Baker was born March 17th, St. Patrick's Day in 1921. Billy Woodward came into the world June the year before in 1920. So these two were running buddies. Same age, same schools, same girls, same everything. You get it. Grenville is also the basis for the fictional character of Bratsy Bleeker in the novel The Two Mrs. Grenvilles. If you've read Dunn's work, you know that Bratsy comes to a bad end, and unfortunately, so does Grenville. It is January 1949, setting the stage five years before Bill's death. A 27-year-old Grenville is married. He's married a girl named Alicia, but on this particular night in January, Grenville has been riding around in the moonlight on a lonely dirt road with another lady that is not his wife by his side. This lady's name is Thelma Griffin, and she's young. She's a divorced tavern car hop who had just met Grenville a few hours before at a nightclub. Off these two go, and it is the following day when Grenville is found dead of a gunshot wound to his head. He's found in his Jeep after they find the Jeep wrecked on his family's property called Horseshoe Bend. Horseshoe Bend is located about 12 miles north of Tallahassee, Florida. The Florida State Attorney, William D. Hopkins, completely says that the death of young Grenville doesn't look like murder. The authorities are saying accidental death, accidental death, which, sure, if you're only taking in the Jeep crash, perhaps, but the gunshot wound to the head really does raise my eyebrows a bit when it comes to the accidental death label. Maybe death by suicide? There is a coroner that will rule that Grenville was, in fact, killed by a pistol by an unknown party. All of it's shady. Thelma Griffin and two others are questioned, but released. They're told to stay close to town, and from that point, the trail goes cold. The internet is scrubbed about this case. You can find a New York Times funeral announcement from January 22nd, 1949, reporting on Grenville's sad, sad funeral, where Billy Woodward is a pallbearer for his best friend that day. You can find a few tiny, tiny things about Grenville Baker, but not a lot. After Grenville's death, the Associated Boys Club of Locust Valley was adopted by his mother, Edith, and the family will donate the land on Forest Avenue to build the original clubhouse. This dedication of the Grenville Baker's Boys Club happens December 7, 1950, and is done, of course, in the memory of Edith's lost son, Grenville. Edith knows scandal. All of these women in the set know scandal. It's not like trashy and terrible things aren't happening to them because they're protected somehow by their money and privilege. The difference here is that this high society set has a way, and the power and the money and the influence, to keep things quiet or make the scandal disappear altogether. So let's go ahead and center back on that late Saturday night, Sunday morning in October, 
Such a fine line between Saturday night and Sunday morning. Billy, after all the embarrassment with Edith Baker, just wants to get Anne home. That night is foggy and the weather is terrible at their home in Oyster Bay Cove, Long Island. The house that Anne and Billy live on is called the Playhouse and is originally owned by the Woolworth family. And remember, they're both hyped up on Prowler Alert, and the Playhouse property includes 60 acres of land. I do want to set the stage with a dark and stormy and foggy night, as well as giving you the expanse of the remoteness-ish of their surroundings. And Billy and Ann, since that afternoon, have talked of nothing else. They've talked in French and hunted around the grounds. That's all they've talked about at the party. Prowler alert. Well, until the phone call. (laughs) And then things change. But everybody's testy. And Anne is made more testy by that phone call at the party. And here she is at a party with Wallace, her heroine. How mortifying for Anne. But legitimately here, Anne possibly made it more mortifying for herself. It is a scandalous exit from the scene. Once Anne and Billy leave, that's all everyone at the party is talking about. Anne and Billy share a tense drive home arriving back at their home, the Playhouse, about 1 a.m. Dominic Dunn will subject that maybe the big game safari hunter Anne went downstairs to their weaponry arsenal in the basement and equipped herself for revenge after Billy's big revelations of the night. Not only has Bill talked to her about, hey, I got the goods on you, you've lied to me, Anne's also had it validated that Billy is in fact fooling around again. Either way, or why can't it be both, the two of them having been drinking alcohol most of the day, Anne, with some pills too in her system, will take a shotgun to her bed in the bedroom across the hall from her husband Bill's. The two have not shared a bedroom in years. It is also good to note here that their two children are in the home, with a nanny and additional servants. Billy has gone to bed in his bedroom with a loaded gun by his bedside as well, and the couple will each settle into their own rooms for sleep. In the wee hours of the morning, the family dog, Sloppy, begins to bark, and Sloppy will continue to bark until Anne emerges from her bedroom with a shotgun in her hand, where, according to Anne, she sees a shadowy figure near Billy's room. And Anne, without calling out to question who this might be, in a home with her husband and children and servants, will instead fire two shots directly into the shadowy figure, which she figures out pretty much immediately is her husband. Anne will call the police. And we'll also call her attorney, Saul Rosenblatt. Our second Mrs. Grenville, Ann Woodward, who we have focused on thus far in this series, is making some moves here. I love this quote from our man Nick. I have always been intrigued by the kind of people who call their lawyers before they call the police after a murder. It is a rich people thing. 
The telephone at the Playhouse in Oyster Bay is not the only one ringing off the hook that morning of October the 30th. The news of Billy's death is not only making its way through the North Shore, through Long Island, and back into the city, switchboards are lit. And it is in this early morning that Billy's mother, Elsie Woodward, will receive a phone call that will change her life again. Elsie has had already so many changes in her life, but with this phone call, her world will never be the same. This is not Elsie's first or second life earthquake. Elsie is a survivor, and she endures, but at what cost? Every decision Elsie makes from this point on is going to be difficult to understand, maybe even impossible, if you don't know how Elsie is formed. She is very much influenced by everything that has come before her, and this is the thread that we're going to pull now into the life and history of our first Mrs. Grenville, Elizabeth Ogden Kreider Woodward, right after we take a break to hear from our sponsors, who we are so, so grateful for. See you on the other side. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. Our little Elsie, or Elizabeth Ogden Kreider, will make a grand entrance into the world on December 2nd, 1882, but she does not come alone. Elizabeth is the oldest of a set of three girls, triplets, born to Duncan Kreider and his wife, Elizabeth Ogden Kreider. Elizabeth Ogden Kreider, the mother here in this equation, is the one with the pedigree. Mama Elizabeth is descended from John Ogden, who in 1670 will abandon Shinnecock Hills, hundreds of acres, because John Ogden disagrees with how the Native Americans are being treated by the white settlers. John Ogden hightails it off to New Jersey, where he will become the leader of Elizabethtown, as well as later a governor of the state. Baby Elsie's dad, Duncan, is a well-heeled tea importer who has been raised in London. He's a popular man. He's at ease with the world and his new money and position. Now, Duncan isn't exactly poor, but this family has more in 
name than in money, at least in the 1880s, where we're picking up this story. It's not to say the Criders are not influential. They are. They are among the earliest members of Southampton's resort colony. The family will summer in a cottage called Sandrift beginning in 1885. But the thing to know about Daddy Duncan is that he's nowhere near as successful as his brother. This guy's name is William Wetmore Crider, and he's the president of Madison Square Bank and super, super rich. William Wetmore Crider is going to help his brother Duncan out with money a lot, which will in turn help the three triplet girls, Elizabeth, Edith, and Ethel. These three are known as the Crider triplets, and they are about to be world famous. The girls also have a brother, born in 1884, named Ogden. Their first decade is idyllic. They grow up summering in Southampton. The rest of the time they're in the city. Everything's going great. Even in 1890, Daddy Duncan gets with a few of his buddies, including William K. Vanderbilt and Edward Meade, to bring golf to America. Literally, to bring golf to America. This is how 80 acres of land was purchased for $2,500, and 44 members sign up for 100 bucks apiece to be part of the first golf club in Shinnecock, this tiny hamlet in Long Island. But it is in 1891 that disaster strikes. Because Elsie's very rich uncle, William Wetmore Crider, well, sort of gets himself in a pickle by embezzling $39,000 from Madison Square Bank. He was the president. It's not really a good look. This $39,000 is about $2 million today, so not an insignificant sum of cash. Part of the problem here for Daddy Duncan is that he serves on the board of the bank as well. And things are looking downright pretty bad, but things get so much worse when Uncle William just kind of flakes out on his whole life. He will desert his wife. He will renege on all of his debts like Uncle Willie out. So here's Daddy Duncan, Mom Elizabeth, and all four kids in the family. They're going to put a smile on and take the meager cash they have left and head over to Paris. The Kreider family is going to live within Europe for almost the next decade in what Elsie will describe as a life of leisure. The girls have a governess. They will learn French. They will also invent and complete a secret language known only to the triplets. The family tours Europe. The triplets acquire an international finishing school that just can't be bought. The family is going everywhere, all of the places, all over the country, mostly off season. But Elsie and her sisters are seeing the world on the cheap. They're also, because of Elizabeth Ogden's pedigree, making some social ties that will last generations. The girls meet our fair Consuela Vanderbilt. Consuela will become Ethel's BFF. In 1897, the triplets are given an invitation into the court of Empress Eugenie, the widow of the last emperor of France, Napoleon III. Of the girls, Elsie is her father's favorite. 
But all three girls are adored. But they also know about their father's ambitions for them. All three are to marry well. And by 1899, all three of them, the lot of them, are about to be 18. The family and the triplets do return in 1899 to New York City. All three girls celebrated for their looks and their style. Again, they have international finishing about them. They are getting a ton of press, which is so ironic considering Elsie gets in her life to really standing by the rule that your name should only appear in papers at birth, marriage, and death. That comes from somewhere, and don't think Elsie didn't influence that. But she comes back as an 18-year-old in 1899, and she's taking Manhattan by storm. So are her sisters. They're on magazine covers. They inspire hot gossip in society columns. The Kreider triplets are an enormous deal. The Kreiders move into a home in Greenwich Village and fill it with the souvenirs of their world travels. The triplets will make their debut into society in 1900, being described as pleasant, well-mannered, but not really pretty girls, tall and slight in figure and graceful in movement. Elsie will say, I'm not old guard. We were poor and we weren't pretty. But my mother was very publicity conscious and dressed us all alike and things like that, so we were pretty well known. It is in the end of December 1902 that disaster strikes. The brother to the triplets, the 17-year-old son of Duncan and Elizabeth Ogden, who was studying at Groton in his fifth form, is crushed to death after he falls under a streetcar as he's jumping off of it. As you can imagine, the entire Kreider family is devastated. Duncan's hope for his son of the heir to continue what may be there is no longer, and now it is all on the triplets to deliver excellent marriages, and they all will, pretty much immediately after this. Edith is the first to marry. Edith will marry Frederick Lothrop Ames, a financier and socialite. His ancestors have landed on Plymouth Rock back in 1635, so long-established pedigree. The Ames family is an enormous deal if you're into shovels. They are the manufacturer of the world's shovels. And Frederick, Edith's husband, at 17 is the shovel fortune heir when his dad dies a premature death. Edith and Freddie get married in May 1904. Edith and Fred build a home in 1905 that is now part of Stonehill College in Boston. In this same year, five months later, in October 1904, it is a fall wedding, and this time it is Elsie with another wonderful match. Daddy Duncan is super happy, could not be happier because Elsie's groom is no less than William Woodward, the future president of Hanover Bank. How do we know that? Well, William's uncle is the current president of Hanover Bank, and William holds bank stock in trust for when his uncle is going to retire. The Woodward family has vast amounts of cash, and William is the, whoa, catchiest catch in the city. 
Now, this marriage triumvirate for Daddy Duncan is going to complete in 1908, when Ethel will marry Henry V. Higgins, known as Cecil. Cecil is the wealthy former secretary of the British Embassy. Cecil will sweep Ethel off her feet and take her to high-swinging London society, where Cecil will also be the director of the Covenant Garden Royal Opera. Great. Let's back up just a little bit and talk about the relationship between Elsie and William Sr. for a moment. They meet in Saratoga in 1903, and William at this time is dashing. He was born April 7th, 1876. At this time when they meet, he's graduated from Harvard. He has a law degree. He has served as secretary to the U.S. ambassador to Britain, and he's been friendly with King Edward VII and all of his posh friends. Now for William Woodward, it's a coup. His family has a ton of money, but not a whole lot of pedigree. Now, to be marrying Elsie, it's the social coup of the season. The two will marry October 24th, 1904 in Grace Church. William Woodward will be Hanover Bank's president by 1910. Elsie and William will settle into a home in 1908 at 11 West 51st Street and continue the children-having process, in which from 1905 to 1920, the couple has five kids, four daughters and one son. When William's father dies in the 19-teens, it is a tremendous inheritance William gets, not only financially, but also in the form of Bel Air Mansion and Bel Air Stud Farm in Maryland as well. The money from William's inheritance will also allow for a few more purchases. The most major one in 1916, the Woodwards are going to build themselves a home at number 9 East 86th Street. The couple will pay $200,000 for the lot, about $4 million today. Delano and Aldrich are the architects designed to commission the home, and a few months later, There are plans for a five-story brick and limestone residence that would end up costing about as much as they paid for the lot, about $200,000. This will be the home that everything happens in. The weddings, the deaths, the home that Anne comes into to live after her wedding with Billy Jr. This is the Woodward home front in New York City until Elsie sells in 1956. Forty years. This is the Woodward Mansion base of operations. Elsie Woodward is an accomplished hostess. So is her husband, for that matter. This couple is top-notch in high society, both domestically and internationally, also within the racing communities they frequent. Their Bel Air stud farm will produce two Triple Crown winners, Gallant Fox and Omaha. The Woodwards also have a summer cottage in Newport, Rhode Island called the Cloister. Now, the Cloister was actually built in 1885 as a timber-framed guest cottage for the main villa that stood next door to it. However, William and Elsie will buy the Cloister in 1910 and complete a major renovation to it by 1914, also done by Delano and Aldrich. The cloister was demolished in 1950 to make room for new home builds. But kind of a fun fact here, 
It is here at the cloister that Elsie tutors servicemen in French before they go into World War I. Elsie knows that knowing French would be helpful to them when they were shipped abroad. Okay, investigators, I could go on all day here, but what I need you to know at this point is that Elsie has had scandal in her family. Also, both of her sisters who made those magnificent, amazing marriages also both divorce. One husband is gay, the other one is a louse. And out of the three, Elsie's the only one to stay married, albeit maybe not completely happily. It's the longest marriage, but at what price? William has money and access, but William's not faithful to Elsie. And it's those trade-offs that you make. And if Elsie's family has scandals between her uncle, William Wetmore, and her sisters in divorce land, please let me tell you about her children. Edith, first daughter, is the horsey one. She's married in 1929. Everything's pretty cool here. Elizabeth, second daughter, this is the one who will marry Ruthie Pratt's father after Elizabeth's first marriage goes bust in 1935. Elizabeth will go on to marry a third time after Ruthie's father passes. Sarah, the next daughter, marries originally in 1936, will divorce and remarry in 1949. Ethel, the last daughter, holy cats, Ethel. Ethel causes a scandal with her marriage in 1941 to the son of a French playwright. They will end up divorcing. Ethel will go on to marry and be the third wife of Yule Brenner. But that's not until 1965. What I'm hoping that you connect there through those other four sisters is that Billy does have four older sisters, three of whom have all gotten divorces long before and during his marriage to Anne. All of Elsie's sisters have gotten divorces too. And here, here is Elsie's darling son who meets Anne. And God bless, Anne will torment Elsie with scandals who has already lived through so many. Scandal stalks Elsie. No matter what she does, scandal will always find her. And here's her beloved son, Billy, who's gone to Buckley, who's gone to Groton, who's gone to Harvard. He's the apple of her eye, of course, the mama. But he's the apple of his sister's eyes, too. This dude has everything going for him. One of the most eligible bachelors in the country, soon to be the president of a bank, like after everything Elsie has worked for. And then Angie Crowell shows up. Daddy William Sugarbuck's cast-offs from Fifi's Monte Carlo. Poor Elsie. Like, you've got to be thinking, you have to be kidding me. It's one thing for my husband to cheat with Anne and, well, a lot of other ladies, but he's a drunk banker sugar daddy and I can remain silent. I can, I've tolerated a lot in my life. I can handle it with my husband, but no, my son Bill deserves more. Elsie does everything she can to stop Bill and Anne's marriage. She'll even hire private investigators to trail Anne, and will in turn tell her son Bill about all of Anne's lovers. To no avail. It is Billy and Anne that for 12 years Elsie has tolerated. 
moved Anne into her home, provided Anne a finishing school so that Anne could be worthy of her beloved son, Bill. And then Elsie gets that cold phone call in the darkness of a Sunday morning, and Elsie's world will never be the same. She doesn't have a husband to call on anymore. She's been a widow now going on two years when, after 50 years of marriage, William Sr. passed away. Elsie is alone, and she's going to have to handle this herself. Elsie knows from the instant the phone rings that it was murder. She's always felt danger around Anne, but even her worst imaginings never got Elsie to this end for her son. Lying dead on the floor at his home in Oyster Bay, with all the promise of the world in front of him now crushed. And Elsie has to make some decisions, and quickly. What links will Elsie go to, to protect the family name, as well as her grandsons? What links will Anne go to, to avoid consequences for the whole sordid affair? We will find out in the next episode of Done and Done, coming next Monday when we pick up with both of our Mrs. Grenvilles, Elsie and Anne, and talk about the investigation, the grand jury, and the bargains that are made in the aftermath. Thank you so, so much for joining me today on Done and Done. You are simply wonderful. Thank you for listening and your kind emails and comments and reviews, as well as telling your investigator friends too. You rock. And I cannot wait to have you back on our next Dunday, darlings. Until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.